Amen. Amen. Well, thank you to our worship team, and, and good morning, everybody. Yeah, you can clap for them. How many of you saw the, the um, Santiago Creek on your way in across the bridge right there? Well, there is a creek right there. Did you know there's a creek right there? It's full of water. It's the coolest thing. I was just saying, like, it's just like whitewater rafting style. It's just like tons of water. Wouldn't it be great if there was water like that all the time? So on this rainy day, I'm glad that you're here at church. Give yourself a, a pat on the back, right? You made it. You made it on those crazy roads, you Californian drivers, and I'm a native Californian. Um, I'm glad that you're here, and uh, we want to welcome everybody also that's worshiping online. I want to welcome a, um, a special group of people that are here today from All Nations Church in Fullerton. Yeah, and uh, Megan and, and her friends are here, and, and would you guys just stand up? Could we just honor you for a moment? Um, This is the worship team from All Nations Church in Fullerton, and they came early to be with our worship team and sit in and, and learn and grow together. So um, we're glad that you guys are here. We welcome you. And we're, it's cool to remind, be reminded that we're not the only thing in town, right? You know that? That there, that there are places all over um, Orange County, all over the world, that, that the people of God are worshiping together. And so you're with family today, and, and uh, we honor you guys, and we're glad that you're here. We're in Hebrews chapter 12, so if you want to open up your Bibles to Hebrews 12, um, I, I shared last week that I'm well aware that it is Christmas season and that our theme is great joy. I'm also well aware we have two chapters left in Hebrews, and, uh, and so we've come this far. We're going to finish strong. Amen? So this week, I'm going to handle chapter 12. Next week, you'll um, get to hear from Pastor Andy as he brings us across the finish line in chapter 13, and, uh, and this has been a great time in the, in the book of Hebrews. Would you agree? You have to say that, right? Because you, I mean, if you were like, nah, it's stunk, Danny, you should really do something. We're praying into uh, what God has in store for um, after the Christmas season and into the new year, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a, of a hint. It's the book of James. So anyways, uh, yeah, no, we were, we, as I've been praying prior to Hebrews, we looked at Philemon, right? And, and that was the, the letter before um, Hebrews, and then the letter after is James. And I, James is one of my favorite uh, letters in the Bible because it's so practical, and, and um, be prepared, you know, it, it, it hits you right between the eyes, but it's a great book as we begin our new year. So just to give you an idea of, of where we're going, and, um, and so we are on, in chapter 12 today. Um, if you remember from last week, in looking at, at chapter 12, uh, excuse me, at chapter 11, um, we, we came into chapter 12, the first couple of verses, because there's a therefore. Everybody say therefore. Whenever there's a therefore in the Bible, you have to figure out what it is there for. It doesn't just randomly happen. It's not just a, a figure of speech. It's a, it's a word that connects you to a thought. And that thought connected you to the previous thought, which was this great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us in the faith, those who had, had, had remained strong through adversity, through difficulty, and held on to the promise of the faithfulness of God, even when their circumstances didn't show like the promise that was being fulfilled. We learned, too, that this promise that was talked about was the promise of the Messiah, right? The promise of, of Jesus who would come to be the rescuer, not only of a, of a, a political kingdom, but the one who would rescue the hearts and the minds of people. And aren't you grateful for Jesus? Really? You guys aren't grateful for Jesus? Man, I don't even know what to say about that. No, I'm kidding. I know you are. 
I was talking with somebody, in fact, it was Jimmy and Sam, we were talking about how, like, it's super awkward when someone teaching asks a question, you're like, do I answer it out loud? What if I get the wrong answer? You know, when it's like a, when it's a real easy one and you get the wrong one, you know, you're like, oh, everybody saw me answer the wrong one. So I get it. I get it. You're in good company. The, the faithful promise of the Messiah was what was anxiously being hoped for, being awaited on, and, um, and some in this, well, all in this great cast of great heroes of the faith, they lived out their entire lives with messianic hope, but they never saw the fulfillment, but they saw the fruit of it through belief that, they, that, that what they believed in the promises of God and it was accredited to them as righteousness. And so therefore comes in and it says, since you're surrounded by, by such a great cloud of witnesses, In other words, since they've done it, they were able to remain strong in faith through adversity, through disappointment, um, beyond feelings. They were able to remain strong in the faith. How much more you? And, um, And I, you know, that would probably be enough just to give you that. That would probably be enough just to say, um... How much do we need to hear that message today? I mean, come on. How much do we need to hear the message of regardless of how we feel, regardless of what is on the horizon or what it looks like, God is who he says he is. He is true to his promises and he is faithful. And so don't lose hope and don't give up. You know, I've said this before from the, the pulpit, but I've, I've heard people say like a pastor only has like three or four sermons. He just preaches them the same way through different verses right? And some of you are like, yeah, I've been around here for a long time. It's true. Um, and I'm, I'm cool with that. But, but one of, I would say, one of my sermons, one of the four, would be don't give up. I think it's the same one we hear every week. I think it's why we, we gather together and worship and, and we're reminded of, of who our God is. And we're reminded in, in building one another up in the faith because you leave these doors and you walk out into to the world that, that surrounds us and it's easy to throw in the towel. It's easy to just step away in discouragement. And so this book is a, is a reminder of that. And so as we get back into it, I just, for this morning, my, my hope is to get through this chapter. I'm going to read the verses. I made some observations and I'm going to give you my best and, and um, give you some things to apply. So here we go. Um, back in chapter 12, verses 1 through wherever we stop. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. As I read this, I want you to pay attention to a repeated word, endurance. You know, and if you're looking for a title, if you're taking notes, um, the title that I I put on today's message is, It's All Worth It. So here we go. Um, Let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. Looking, um, I put a bunch of notes there so I can't even read. Looking. To the founder, to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just one quick observation there. If you um, make note in your Bible, if you have one or your, your thing that you have, your phone or whatever, um, the word looking is a unique word. You know that the Greek language has many different ways of saying the same thing that we could say in English. We have like look in English. There's a bunch of different words in Greek that describe different kinds of looking. This looking is more like staring. This looking is used only one time in the New Testament. Interesting, right? This word is used one time in the New Testament specific to Jesus. And it's looking intently. Like, I think some of your translations might say fixing your eyes on Jesus, right? If you have, uh, I think the, the NIV, it says that. 
fixing your eyes, looking intently, um, to stare. Have you ever been in a staring contest? Right? A staring contest. You know, you're looking at that person. You're not going to blink. Your eyes are watering. They're trying to, to mess you up, get you off your game. But you are, you are locked on. It's that. It's that word. And in order to stare at Jesus, you've got to, to shut off everything else. It's like tunnel vision for Jesus. And this is what it's saying to the, to the Hebrew believers. This is what it's saying to us, I believe. That yeah, there's a lot of things happening in the periphery, but, but when we lock our eyes and when we stare intently, when we gaze on Jesus, and that word also has this dimension of adoringly. Like, so it's not staring in a creepy way, because staring in and of itself is just creepy. Like if you've ever been stared at, that's just odd. This is not that. This is like, I can't get my eyes off of you. I can't take my eyes off of the beauty of you, Jesus. I can't, I can't look away. I'm looking intently. I'm gazing on you. And as we said last week, and we'll continue to say that wherever your eyes go, that's where your behavior follows, right? That your eyes lead your feet. When you see the, the destination, you're able to overcome the obstacles. When you see the obstacles, you trip over them. And so looking intently, staring at the one who is perfect in every way. It says that um, who, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This first thought that I have um, is, you know, I'm going to throw it at you in the beginning because it's not the fun one, but it's one that we need to hear, that we all need to accept the Lord's discipline. Can you just raise your hand and say, come on, bring on that discipline, Lord. I just accept it. First off, I think we need to, to handle what the word discipline really means because we all filter what we read through our own experiences. If you've had, you know, maybe sat under authoritarian leadership, you've had abusive authorities in your life, be it a parent or somebody else, sometimes you hear that word and you're like, I'm out. You just check off or check out or check off, either one, I don't know. But you check out. But what I encourage you is to, to, to look at what the, the scripture says um, and to understand what it's saying. And so, so let's read it. It says, Consider him who endured from such sinner hospi- host- hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. I love this perspective, right? It says, In your struggle, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. It's like, look, I know things are tough. But, but this is the point in the letter where it's getting to the end. He's built his case. He's, he's built the case that Jesus is better, that it's a better covenant. You're awaiting a better place, that there's a promise and a hope that's set out there for you. Don't lose heart. That this case has been built, and now he's drilling down into some really practical stuff. He's coming in for a landing. He's been kind. He's been patient. And now he's saying, all right, come on. Come on, guys. Don't go back. Don't go back to this other way. Don't abandon the faith. And in this perspective, he says, yeah, I know it's hard. I know it's hard, but you're not bleeding. And what I think he was trying to do is to to paint a picture and to reflect back on those who had paid an even heavier price and showing them in their moment that, that, yeah, things were difficult, but God was going to get them through it. And so in that perspective, he says, um, you've, you've not yet... Um, resisted to the point of shedding blood? And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises everyone whom he receives. 
This is that it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, right? This is I'm doing this because I love you, right? For parents or, or on the receiving end of that discipline. But the, the difference between punishment and discipline is profound, okay? The difference between punishment and discipline is profound. I have a definition of punishment. Um, punishment is the penalty for the offense, right? So punishment is when, when you've done something wrong, you're going to pay for it. Punishment is um, what, what happens when you break the law and you end up getting a prison sentence, right? Punishment. Discipline um, so it's, it's about suffering for the wrong choice. And that suffering is the right word. It's about, you know, you, you need to feel the weight of what's happened and, and, and feel it. Discipline is about learning how to choose. And it's teaching through hardship, right? And so the one who is disciplined is looking at, at the circumstances of life, um, whether it's in parenting and you're helping your, your child see, hey, you made the wrong choice here. And there is a consequence to discipline, but it isn't just like, man, I'm going to make you pay. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but parents in the room, have you ever just disciplined your kid when you were mad at him? Yeah. Right? <laughs> the discipline that happens out of anger is different than the discipline that happens out of, and you know, by the way, sometimes you're mad at him because you're like, man, they're acting just like me. And you don't want them to go through that. But, but there's other times where you're able to step back and realize, okay, this is my role to help them see through a mistake, through a bad choice, through sin, whatever it might be, that there's a better way. And so in firmness, in love, and in compassion, you help teach them through a process in order to help them to choose more wisely. And so what, and, and, and discipline has a great impact in the long term. In fact, Scripture says that, look, if, if, if the parent who doesn't discipline their kid doesn't love them. And so when we begin to experience our hardships in our lives, we look at it and we go, okay, God is going to do something through that. Now, I'm on slippery slope here on a little bit of, of dangerous territory because it's always a very um, dangerous thing to say what God is doing in the life of somebody else. Okay, and let me, let me make my point here. It's a natural thing for us when someone's going through a really rough time to go, oh, you know, here, let me listen for a minute and let me give you a lot of words. Right? I'm going to listen in here, but then I'm going to try for my own well-being or maybe for yours to explain what's happening so that we all feel better about ourselves. Have you ever been in that situation before? Uh, I have the saying, it's like, you know, there's certain times you just want to light yourself on fire. You're like, you're, it's a joke. It's, it's an extreme joke. So um, I, I'm not sure how we're doing today. I can't tell because there's like a hum. Maybe it's the rain that just settled you before you came here. But don't quote me on the light yourself on fire thing. But it's, a, it's an extreme statement of saying, like, you're listening. You're listening to someone explaining your pain or explaining your circumstance and making sense of it and maybe using scripture and whatever else. And you're just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's the lighter, right? Because you don't want to hear it anymore. And there's a, there's a, there's a part of that that's because maybe, maybe that person doesn't understand the full circumstance or maybe they're speaking on behalf of God and they've got it wrong or maybe they're right and you just don't want to hear what they're saying. But this is, this is that territory where it's like it's really a slippery slope. Do you remember, um, have you read the book of Job? You know, good morning reading. Uh, Job is gives us the, the context for this. And Job has three friends, and his three friends do three things really good, right? One, they show up when he's suffering. There's a, a tendency for us when people are suffering around us and going through difficulty that we don't want to get near them 
because we don't know what to do. Have you been there before where it's like somebody has just had a, a dramatic loss or there's a difficulty in their life and it's like, I'm going to give them, you, you tell yourself, I'm going to give them a little space, you know? And so first and foremost, they show up, right? And then they, the, these three friends of Job, they also spend time with him. They show up and they give him the gift of time. And even says that and the third thing they do that's right is that they, they weep with him. Right? That, that, I mean, he, Job is just, if you read the story, it's hard to even conceptualize what he went through. But where they get it wrong is they, they begin to explain what God's up to. And I, I pulled this up. I hope we have it in the NLT. But if we don't, don't even put it on the screen because it'll mess, mess you up. But this is what it says in common language in the NLT. It says, After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Elphaz, the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends. This is God talking. I'm angry with two, you and your two friends. You have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. Sometimes we get it wrong when we're trying to say what God's up to because we're filtering it through our own emotions and our own experience. But in this case, the author of Hebrews is saying something different. He's saying that the things that we are going through, that God will use in order to shape us and bring discipline to us. It says that for the discipline that you have to endure is God treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you're left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, you have had, an earth, you've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. We shall not much more be, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? If they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now listen to this in verse 11. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I don't like signing up for uncomfortable things, right? I don't like walking into difficulty. Um, I think that's because I'm human. But I think there's a really dangerous thing that's happening in our culture right now. It's really a dangerous thing that's happening in our culture. And I think what's being taught in our culture is to at all costs avoid anything uncomfortable. It's a tendency to teach children that if it's if you're uncomfortable with it, and again, I'm speaking to character things, not inappropriate things, but if you're uncomfortable, then, then you, you don't have to do it, right? It puts the person in charge of every aspect of their entire life. And I think it's dangerous. Let me um, give you a little more clarity, I, I hope, in this whole conversation, is um, that unless something that we bring into our life is self-imposed or if it's like a, a self-discipline, like if we decide, hey, I want to train myself to do X, you know, if it's a self-imposed thing, then it's good to go. But if somebody tells you something you're doing is wrong, that's totally illegal, right? If somebody in authority or a parent or a teacher or somebody else would, would share with you that, that's something that um, you should maybe think to work on or maybe take a risk in or get out of your comfort zone and uh, try to do this. If that's told to you and you don't, you don't agree with it, 
then you have this um, free pass card, this statement that you can make. And the statement goes like this. I'm not comfortable with that. Okay? I'm not comfortable with that. And so what, our, what, what we're dealing with, I think, in, in, a, in our cultural moment is that if we're not comfortable with something in the workplace, if we're not comfortable with something with an authority figure, we just say it and that person is like, oh, shoot, they're not comfortable with it. I guess we're done here. Let me give you a real life example. Uh, my daughter's not here today, but she, she was uh, her senior year of high school. She was working at a job, and um, it was at, happened to be at a grocery store. And so at the grocery store, there was a, a part of her duty that was to go out and collect the carts at night, right? And uh, my daughter's about this tall. And so in that area at night, she would go out and collect the carts and, you know, navigate through the cars and, you know, people, whoever was there, and bring the carts in. There were a lot of people around and she goes, Dad, this guy, he's like a 30-something-year-old guy. He's like a grown man. And uh, our boss told him, hey, go collect the carts. And he's like, yeah, it's dark out there, and there's a lot of people in cars. I'm not comfortable with that. And so she goes, so my boss goes, Kate, will you go collect the carts? <laughs> Kate, that's a picture of the moment, right? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? That we're averse to conflict, we're averse to discipline, we're averse to discomfort. So let's not, let's not talk about it versus what is God doing and how does that, that moment in culture impact our lives and the way that we see God doing stuff. Is any of this making sense to you? I was so proud of my daughter. She's like, Dad, I'm cool. I got pepper spray on my keychain. I'm, I'm good to go. Like, but but the, the point is not to gripe about culture. I'm not into that. The point is to understand how the culture of the kingdom is different than the culture of the world and, and, the, and the importance of understanding that sometimes we are put in really difficult, painful situations and our tendency is to run away from them because I'm not comfortable with this. You know, we, we put out the theme for, Easter, for Christmas and I'm 100% behind it. Great joy. Great joy. And if I was to take a poll in the community of Christians and say, hey, would you like to come to a series on great joy? I think we would get a lot of people that would say, yeah, I need that in my life. I want some great joy. Likewise, if I was to put out the, the sermon series, it would say, deep discipline, lots of pain, suffer well. You know, I don't know if it would have the same, like, five stars on Yelp or whatever. You know what's funny? Like, churches get Yelp reviews and Google stuff as well. Like, it, yeah, anyways. I share all this to say that these things are connected together. Our deep joy, our great joy, the, the passion that we, we long for, the fulfillment that we have in our lives, um, it, it's connected to our willingness to step into some uncomfortable places. And I guess the big question for you and asking if it's all worth it is, are you willing to step out of your comfort zone, right? And the older that we get and the more set in our ways or the, the more that we you know, have a zone around us that we're comfortable with, the less that we want to get out of that zone, but I think that the message of Hebrews and the message of the entire Bible is a constant push in, in loving discipline to get rid of certain areas in, of our lives that, that we've grown comfortable with that we shouldn't be comfortable with. And as the Holy Spirit so lovingly and gently pushes us out of there, that we can either participate with that or we can resist it, and we can miss out on the great joy because of our unwillingness to get out of our comfort zone. 
And it's a great tragedy when you really think about it, that there are certain things that we can carry with us through our entire lives that God has so longing to rescue us from, but we're resisting his discipline in our lives. And so as, as, um, as challenging as it is, make a note of that in your, in your life. And, and this is what I was doing this week. I was thinking about this message and I was going, man, what a tragedy, God, if there were those blind spots or those areas in my life that I would carry all the way into into like senior years of my life. Like what a sad reality. Well, first I thought it like most of us, like what a sad reality when other people do that. Because it's super easy to see other people's dysfunction, is it not? As you could see somebody else's dysfunction, go, man, they should really give that to God. Like I think God longs to heal them in that area. Well, that rain sounds so cool, doesn't it? But, the, but, but to, to then take it from that point and to go, okay, yeah, I could see that in somebody else's life, but Lord, search me and know me. What are the areas where I'm unwilling to step out of my comfort zone? And guess what? God is faithful, and he was faithful to me. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but there were some things on that list. And I'm sure there's some things on, on your list as well. And the reason that we bring it out is because we love each other and because God loves us. And his discipline is doing something deep and is shaping something awesome in us. And so are we willing to step out of the comfort zone? You know, there's a real danger to avoiding uncomfortable things. In fact, um, you've probably heard of this before, but there's a very rare disease of people who don't feel pain. Are you familiar with this? There's a, a disease, and this isn't a, I'm not setting up for a joke, it's a reality. Um, there's a, a, a disease called CIPA, C-I-P-A, and what it stands for is congenital insensitivity to pain, and um, the, the word starts with an A, I can't pronounce it, but it's the inability to sweat, right? So there are, very, there are some people who in life cannot, literally cannot feel pain. And some of the symptoms, and you might think about that and go, man, how rad would that be? Like, I would be an awesome football player or whatever else it would be. If I didn't feel pain, I, we could just go for it. But the reality of those that, that don't feel pain, they have a lot of injuries. The children are, are frequently burned because they have not learned the lesson of discipline that when you touch the stove, something hot is there and it will burn you. That those who, who don't feel the, the discomfort of pain have a lot of infections. These people have a lot of infections because they don't instinctively take care of their wound. Because if you have a wound, um, let's say you have a, a, a scrape on your elbow or something like that, and you cover it and you kind of baby it, right? Because you don't want to hit it because it hurts extra hard when you have that there. But for the one who doesn't feel pain, they don't cover it. They don't, they're just cruising around life because it, they don't feel the pain. And so that leads to infection. That those who have this um, rare disease are often those that have um, a mouth filled with cavities because they don't feel the toothache in order to do something with the infection that's happening in their mouth. Are you getting the point? Not to mention they have difficulty with bladder control. That's embarrassing. Going through your life not feeling the pain of when you got to go. And you know, you might think, okay, what are you doing here? The, the, the reality of, of, our, of like being stepping away from the Lord's discipline will embarrass us. It will embarrass us the more that we step away from his discipline because the impact or the effects of the things that he wants to root out of our life are for our own good and for his glory. 
And so from this point on, and as we kind of come into the last end of the chapter, there's some really practical directives that help us out of this and that show some categories and areas where the Lord wants to discipline us or, or, or train us or teach us. It's not because God's mad at us and he wants to get you better. He already likes you. He already likes you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Okay, that box is checked. Now he's forming Christ-likeness in you because you signed up for it. In fact, if you don't know it, listen to the worship songs that you sing every week. You're on the hook, man. My heart is yours. My heart is yours. Take it all. Take it all. My life's in your hands, right? You sang it. I heard you. Thank you. You sang it. He heard you. We're on the hook for it. And it's not like a, it's not like a loophole, like, oh, no. It's what we, what we sing to him because we want him to mold and shape and change us. And, and he responds in his faithfulness. And so these are some of the things that, that, that he, he says. And then there, therefore, is there. Right? And it's like, the as I said before, Hebrews has these moments where it just builds you up and you're, you know, you're, you're feeling terrible. And then it's like this, these locker room pep talk moments. And this is the locker room pep talk moment. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Saying is, this is not the time to be passive when you feel the, the discipline of the Lord, when you feel that He's working in your life. It's not the time to be passive, it's the time to press into it. Anyone who's gone through surgery, who's gone through an injury, um, everything in you wants to just like probably just sit and do nothing because of the, the discomfort. But what do they do? It's amazing. They put a new knee in you, and then all of a sudden, a couple hours later, what do they want? Get up out of bed and start walking. I um, had the privilege of doing a, a funeral yesterday for a wonderful, wonderful woman in the community. It was Jack and Bev's neighbor, and um, her name was Beatrice. They called her B. She was 103 years old, sharp as a tack. Happened to find out that she was connected to the Alvarez family, that, that this woman gathered with um, a large group of, of friends every morning at 5 in the morning, backed her car out, and went to the village and walked five miles Five miles, not at 103, but just all the way up until 102, she was going to the gym. Going to the gym, right? And she was given a free membership because she was really inspiring the younger people, those that were in their 80s. <laughs> and and what, what was amazing about her is the grace of God over her life, you know, the adversity that she had endured. She was born in England, and she was born in the same, uh, just on the heels of the, of the, the great flu um, pandemic, right? So she comes over to America right on the heels of World War I. She's a Rosie the Riveter. Her husband goes to World War II. Her husband, in, oh, pardon me, at age nine, uh, it, 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 as a little girl, her father dies. At age nine, her mother dies. She ends up in an orphanage. She was raised up in the orphanage. She becomes a Rosie the Riveter. She meets her husband at 17. He goes to World War II. He is in an accident. He becomes paralyzed. She pushes him in a wheelchair. You know, you just follow the, the story of what would seem like such adversity. And what was the fragrance of her life? Was she a bitter old lady? You don't get to be 103 years old with a bunch of friends if you're a bitter old lady. She was spry and happy and joyful and thankful and busy about the things that God had put before her to do. 
And she did not have these weak knees and feeble arms. I mean, she was out getting it done. She knew that it was time to sec. In fact, in, the, in some of the things that she had written and others had said, she was like, I'm knocking on the Lord's door wondering what's he, what he's waiting for. I'm 103. She knew her God and she knew when it was time. And so you, you, you have um, those examples, those great cloud of witnesses, those that you're like, man, when I grow up, I want to be like her. And as is said many times from this pulpit, I heard Pastor John say it, you don't become um, a sweet old man or a sweet old lady one day. You got to start right now. You start now submitting to the discipline of the Lord. You start now letting him refine those areas in your life, not uh, avoiding the discomfort, but pressing into it and letting him love you and letting him parent and father you. And so this strengthening um, is a participation, right? Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak, weak knees and make straight the path for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And then listen to this. This is the good stuff. Are you ready for the good stuff? Come on. Say, I'm ready for the good stuff. This is where it gets personal. Strive for peace with everyone. Raise your hand if you're like, yeah, strive for peace with everyone. Romans 12 puts it like this. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's a good balance to this in Scripture that you're not supposed to be a peace-at-any-price person, meaning you're going you're gonna to compromise the truth of God's word in order to make someone happy with you. That's not what it's saying. But it's also saying you can't be a, a monk somewhere lost in your own world because you want to keep your comfort zone. you got to be among messed up people, and you're one of them. We are messed up people. We've got to be among this world. And in, that, in this world, we have to strive to be at peace with people. It's a great message for Christmas time. If you want to experience great joy, strive for great peace. And that means like within our own families. It means with your weird uncle. It means with the, 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 the person. Everybody's got a weird uncle, right? I think I am the weird uncle. Um, <laughs> it means, and it gets a layer deeper. And I know this is, yeah, easier said than done. See to it that no one fail. Oh, excuse me. It says, um, and strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without with, which without which no one will see the Lord. Repay no one, uh, excuse me, see to it in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up to cause trouble. By it, many will become defiled. The old bitter root scripture, huh? How many times have you heard it quoted? It's still true. We have a tree. I've told you about our tree in our front yard. Maybe if I haven't told you, I'm going to tell you right now. It is a pretty tree. People stop and take pictures of the tree, and I'm not kidding. It's very pretty. It's very prolific. It, it produces a lot of fruit. The tree has a bitter root. Okay, the tree was, uh, uh, my wife did it. Anyways, sorry. No, it was a hybrid tree, and it, it produced this really sweet fruit, and we pruned it one time, and, um, and we pruned it, and when we cut the, the, one of the, the, the vines, it was the, the sweet vine. It was basically the one that made the fruit good. 
And so the tree continued to grow. And man, people think we're like terrible. They're like, you know, you can just feel the judgment in the neighborhood because there's all this fruit. And when the wind comes, it just goes on the ground. And people are like, can I take some of your fruit? Like, you know, basically, like, if you're not going to eat it, I am. And we have to tell the story every time. Like, really, the, the, the fruit is bitter. It doesn't, it, well, it, it looks, it's supposed to be an orange, but it looks like a lemon. And so we have to go through the whole explanation. And they're like, uh-huh. Okay, well, do you mind if I try it? And now I'm like, go for it. Take a couple bags of it. There's nothing good about the fruit. You eat it, it's all tangy and weird. You can't do anything with it. It's so sad. The tree has been defiled. (laughs) It's really no good. But listen, this tree is a parable. Because there is such hope. Because this year, something wonderful happened. At the very base of this beautiful tree, these new green, different-looking branches came out. And they produced fruit. And that fruit is exceptionally good. I mean, it's just, it's so good. Redemption. And my hope one day is that 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 will just grow into a lovely fruit-bearing tree once again. Um, probably won't. I'm probably going to cut it down and get more judgment. But, but the, the point I'm trying to say is in real life, I see that every day. And I, and I realize that when you begin to fall prey to bitterness, your life can appear like it is fruitful and beautiful. And, and, and yet when people sort of uh, taste or experience you, you, you quickly find out that because of, of something that's in your roots, what you're bringing forth is not beautiful at all. In fact, what it says in there is if we allow that root of bitterness to happen in our lives, it doesn't just mess our lives up, but what does it do? It defiles many. This is, again, probably, you know, we said there's four sermons. This is probably another one of the sermons that I have would be on the reality of forgiveness, The only antidote to that bitterness is forgiveness. And forgiveness is not an easy thing. But the concept of forgiveness is so important to to remember over and over again, especially during the holidays. When you're forced with um, situations or you're put in, in circumstances that remind you of your childhood and maybe that wasn't a good thing. Or there's emotions that stir up. And to be able to release forgiveness. Um, The famous quote goes like this, that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Right? That that bitterness that we bring into our lives, it impacts us. And so when it says here um, to, to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, it's basically that one of the, the um, commentators says it's keeping up with the grace of God, that God's grace so graciously poured out is moving on, right? It's, his grace is moving on, enabling you to move on. And, and, and listen, this is a bigger subject for a, a longer conversation. I don't mean to diminish the difficulties that anyone's gone through or the betrayals or the, the very real things that, that cause that temptation towards unforgiveness. I, I don't mean that at all. I recognize that, that it's a process. But my, my encouragement to you today as I read this with you is to say, if it's uncomfortable and you don't feel comfortable, don't pull the uncomfortable card. Begin to go, okay, God, I'm going to... Okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. I'm going to, I'm going to get closer to you on this. And by your grace, help me to forgive. Amen? <laughs> that was a weak amen. 
Verse 16 says um, that, that see to it that this, this root of bitterness springs up and, and, it, and it causes many to be defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. This just, the, the sexual immorality and the unholiness of Esau speaks to, um, to the need for instant gratification. It's the lack of discipline, right? So Esau, we know the story, he comes back from his hunt, he's hungry, and he wants what he wants when he wants it. How many of you want what you want when you want it? Right? How many of you over the last couple of years, like, go, wait, what do you mean you don't have it? <laughs> right? <laughs> Like, prior to that, we didn't know what a supply chain was. It was just always there. And it's like the worst of the worst when that whatever item on the menu or you... How many of you, like, over the last couple of years been shocked that people run out of stuff? Like, probably in the times that you can remember, like, prior to a few years ago, you don't remember people running out of anything? This is, a, this is also a part of our culture where we have to lean into the discipline of the Lord and realize, okay, God, mold me and, and shape me. That I want to submit my need to have instant gratification in exchange for you doing a work in me. And just like Esau, um, who made a huge error in selling his birthright just like that, which was a very precious thing. And then later, mourning the loss of that birthright. And it wasn't about him being unforgiven for what he did. Sure, God can forgive. He'll forgive anything. But there's a consequence to that immediate gratification. It's interesting that it links Esau's choice to, to sell that birthright and sexual immorality, right? That, that the reason that one engages in sexual immorality is the need for instant gratification. There's a whole long soapbox we can go on here, but again, within our culture right now, you want to talk about a hot topic, a topic that really needs addressing is in, within the same idea of being able to pull out that I'm not comfortable with this becomes the permission for somebody to say, I don't want to be this anymore, whether it's changing or redefining one's um, gender whether it's confusing children or, or just allowing um, the, the, the moment where I feel this way and then giving them the ability to reassign or to stop puberty. These are things that I know that you read about and I know that you're aware of. But as we step back in this moment and go, God, what are you trying to teach us? What is the core? What is the root of this? The root of this is that when we're not comfortable, we want to fix it right now really quick, whatever it is to do it. When what the Bible teaches us is that this is a process where we have to lean in to the discipline of the Lord and allow him to shape in us what we want, what he wants for us, not what we want for ourselves in that minute. And so it sees to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He then gets into this last bit, and i got to keep going to get us through. But in verse 18, it says, You have not come to what cannot be touched, a blazing fire of darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a voice whose words made the hearer beg that no further message might be spoken, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight of Moses when he said, I, he said, I tremble with fear. That's speaking of Exodus 19 when God shows up on Mount Sinai and it is so 
It is so frightening that the people are like, oh, I don't want to hear, right? That even if an animal comes near that mountain, it's vaporized, that there's, there is a absolute fear over this moment. And the message of Hebrews is you're being called into something better. There's a better covenant. And he takes you to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is, is there in Jerusalem, the city of God, this place of peace. And boy, I sure hope that I can bring us in for a landing for you to understand this, that part of what this hope is, is that you have been, you are experiencing uh, only a measure of this hope now, but there is hope to come because then it gets into some other sort of apocalyptic kind of language when it says, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And verse 22 says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of righteousness made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and sprinkled with the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was the first murder in the Bible. Cain, his brother, murdered him and it says in scripture that his blood spoke. And when his blood cried out, what his blood cried out was for justice. And there's a, con- there's a contrast that's happening. I have a quote here, if we could put it up on the screen. And I think it sums it up really well. It says, though Abel's innocent blood cried out for justice against sin, Jesus' innocent blood cried out for mercy for sinners. And the, Abel's blood exposed Cain in his wretchedness. Jesus' blood covers our wretchedness and cleanses us. From all sin. It's powerful, isn't it? And so in, in verse 25, it says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused to him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven. And at that time, this is where the language gets like apocalyptic. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made in order that the that cannot be shaken, the things that cannot be shaken will remain. And then he says, therefore, let us be grateful for we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What does any of that mean? I can only imagine that what you might have experienced in your life and what you might even be experiencing now is a shaking, right? A shaking. It's no fun to be disciplined, and it's no fun to feel the instability of being shaken, but the result of it is pretty powerful. The result of what we're reading in Scripture is that the reason that we can sometimes go through these times of shaking, whether it's cultural, whether it's national, whether it's individual, is because these are earthly structures. These earthly structures, these things that are man-made and created in our lives, Maybe there are things that you created in your life. Maybe it's a little pet sin, or maybe it's some kind of thing that you've created within the structure of the system of your life. And the goodness of God shakes that stuff so that what remains is what can't be shaken, because what you're going to inherit is a kingdom that is not made with hands. The inheritance of this kingdom is the promise of the gospel, that you experience it in part here, but you will experience it in complete 
completely in eternity. The way that theologians say it is you're experiencing it here, it's now, but it's also not yet. And that's what he's referring to. He's referring to the shaking that's, that's, that the systems of this world, the instability that's around us, the things that we see, it won't remain because he's going to make all things new. And there's hope in that. And so as we, we consider that hope, this is the, the very practical things that he leaves us with. He says, therefore, in light of all this, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know, what I'm reading there is a promise of God for stability. How many of you need stability in your life? And I think we all do. Secondly, he says that we're to offer an acceptable sacrifice. According to Romans, that's our lives, this reasonable act of worship. And then third, it says with reverence and awe that our God is a consuming fire, that we're to be true worshipers, standing in awe and staring in the wonder and the eyes of the one who has us, who holds us. And the more that we stare into the beauty of God, the more that these things around diminish. You know that old song, I remember growing up and singing it, is turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his, his wonderful face, or glorious, I don't know. And it says, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I think that's the message of, of chapter 12. It begins with getting your eyes on him. It takes you through a process of, of connecting with you as a human, understanding that God is doing something, and don't resist it. The challenge, once again, is to stay in, the, to stay in it and to, to listen to the Lord where he's call, calling you out of your comfort zone. This message for me personally was very challenging. It was challenging because it, it had an impact in my life, and I pray that it does yours. Uh, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes, and we'll have just a moment to, to pray together. Lord, on a, on a rainy day, a day with some gloom, we thank you that you're the God of all hope. And even in a season where we're proclaiming the truth and heralding it like the angels, there's good news of great joy. We have to understand part of the bad news in order to embrace the good news. And God, I thank you that our hope is anchored in you, that our joy comes from you. And in a very practical way, God, I pray that you would move in our hearts Lord, that you would show us some of the areas where maybe we're holding on to some things that you are trying to discipline us out of. And in your goodness, you continue to knock on the door of our heart. Lord, we want to open it wide to you. Lord, I, I want to just say to you, God, that I, I want to step out of, of my comfort zone. I pray, God, that those that are, are here would have the same prayer, Lord, to trust you in those areas, to not just wave that I'm not comfortable with this card. But, Lord, to trust you and to find, Lord, that you're faithfully doing something through discipline. And, God, finally and, and, and ultimately, together as your people, Lord, we offer our lives as living sacrifices. This is our, our, our reasonable act of worship. Lord, we, we come to you grateful. I thank you for this wonderful woman that I was able to, to get to know a little bit, especially through the stories of her life. May our lives reflect that same kind of 
gratitude and zest and just go for it, that regardless of what we see around us, our eyes are fixed on you, that we're staring at you. We're staring at you adoringly, and that as our eyes are on you, the things of this world are strangely dim. And finally, God, we're grateful for a kingdom that can't be shaken, one that's eternal, and the hope, Lord, of your return for us. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Bless your people, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you. God